Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A huge edition of the Gegen Pod this week, and with the Matildas having just finished a two-match series, we have two Matildas joining us in the pod. Former star Amy Duggan and current player Amy Harrison will run the rule over the latest international window, which also had some World Cup qualifiers going right down to the wire. Michael Bridges, former Premier League star, joins us as well to talk about the Premier League, Champions League results, and also some of the best and worst in La Liga. I'm your host, Teo Pelizzeri. Let's get into the Optus Sport Football Podcast. This is the Gegenpod. It is indeed a stellar lineup of panellists for the Gegenpod this week. We have former Matilda Amy Duggan, we have current player and capped Matilda Amy Harrison, and former Premier League star Michael Bridges. We've got so much to get to as well. A morning of Champions League with an Australian flavour, international football, and of course the Premier League and La Liga. And that is perhaps where we might start the Premier League. Just best and worsts. We love to start the show with the best moment of the weekend and also your worst or least favourite moment of the weekend. Michael Bridges, it's great to have you back this week. So let's start with your best moment. I've got to say my best moment. I'm giving somebody, Troy MacDonald, a golf pro in Australia who is an Arsenal fan. This one goes out to you. He had a go that we've never mentioned Arsenal in the last four weeks when they've been winning, Teo. I say, I don't do the scripting, but my best moment of the weekend was seeing Arsenal get smashed off Manchester United. (laughs) (laughs) So they've got to mention... Amy Duggan, what about your best moment of the weekend? Oh, as always, I can't stick to one, can I? Alexis McAllister's goal, the disallowed strike was so superb that I, I'm going to stick with him because I felt that free kick was just karma for not being able to um, have that goal, you know, on the record sheet. And also, it was so lovely to watch. Of course, he picked up the pen. I think he should have had two. uh, Sorry, he should have had three, not just the two that he got. So to be denied one of the goals of the season by VAR was a little bit heartbreaking. But Graham Potter then getting lots of praise for his side start to the season. But that was an absolute cracker. And Amy Harrison, your best moment of the weekend. Yeah, I'm going to double on with Bridgie here with a, a Man United Arsenal tone, but mine's uh, for Man United. I can't believe I'm saying this as a, as a Liverpool fan, but their their goal for Anthony, how they played that build-up, I think it touched 11 players. Um, it was back to front. It was side to side. It was two killer passes, one from Ericsson, one from Bruno, and then the goal to top it off for me. Um, as a neutral football fan... Uh, to see Man United starting to come into form and just from a neutral, how good was it? Well, from a fan, it's even better, eh? (laughs) (laughs) There you go, Amy. (laughs) We'll stay with you uh, and come back around in reverse for your worst or your least favourite moment of the weekend. So what what didn't take your fancy? Yeah, the whole VAR debacle this weekend just just got me. Um, Amy just touched on it with... That goal that was disallowed, but there was so many and it was just so frustrating to see um, the stoppages of play. For a player, how frustrating it must be, but for us as fans as well. And, and pundits, it's, it's uh, not looking good for VAR and hopefully we sort it out very soon. I agree. VAR was mine too, Tay. Like the the fact that we're even talking about it and the fact that it's deciding games, it's deciding results, it's taking away the joy of celebrations or you've got to wait to celebrate. I just, I'm done with it in saying that. I feel like the Matildas could have done with VAR last night. So, you know, (laughs) I like it when it suits me. I don't like it when it doesn't. First time ever on the podcast, we have the trifecta. There you go. VAR, absolute shambles. And it was, you know, it was just shocking. Some of the decisions were shocking and they've still left. It's still up in arms. Some are still saying the decisions were correct and some are still saying they were wrong. So um, all in all, an absolute shambles of a weekend for the VAR. Just quickly on that then, is the issue that VAR is being used to re-referee the game, i.e. the foul uh, in the build-up to what would have been Arsenal's opening goal against Man United, 
Or is it uh, perhaps a case like the West Ham-Chelsea game where the PMGOL, the, the referees' bodies, come out and said, yeah, we, we need to actually review it. We got it wrong. I, I suppose ultimately people blame VAR. They don't blame the referee no. in the VAR booth. But how is it any different to perhaps criticising any given referee if, if they're the ones that ultimately make the decision or summon the central referee over to have another look at, a, at an incident? I'm all for VR and I'm all for the decisions that have been made that are for the better of the game to see more goals, make it more attractive. If they are on side, if there's not a foul committed. However, what annoys the hell out of me is when it is still open to interpretation and one person or two persons can make that decision and it can be so different. And they don't back the decisions up. So they've made the decision. Somebody tells them that they may have made a mistake. They'll go over, have a look. Then they start self-doubting themselves. I've only seen, I think we've only seen two occasions this season where a referee is stuck by his own decision on the field. And that's the disappointing side of it. Because when things are slow, down it can look far more worse than it is too I could come up to you in the office mate and give you a little jab on the side of the arm and just make minimal contact and if we replayed that in slow-mo and we showed it it would look like a full impact that I'd gone to punch you you can't actually determine the impact or the pressure on it and I think that was the the one that I think with the Mendy challenge for the West Ham goal I thought it was a very very weak decision Amy Harrison, how many games have you actually played in with VAR? Because I, I suspect the vast majority of your career, uh, even at professional level, has been in games that didn't have VAR. But did you have them in European games or uh, Dutch league games or any instances where you have had matches with VAR? Or is it something that's still a, a foreign concept? No, I have um, a few Champions League games. And luckily enough, I haven't been on the side where it's taken a long time. There's been doubt. There's been change of calls. But um, you know, speaking to a lot of my friends and teammates that have, um, it's just, it's frustrating. It ruins the momentum, the flow of the game. Yeah, like Bridgie just said, it brings in self-doubt to referees and makes them change their mind. You slow it down, it changes the perspective of, of what's just happened, really. And when you have that happening and you change the game, for me, are we bringing it in for a positive thing or is it now a negative thing and we really need to think about if it is the best thing for the game? Well, it's it's not going anywhere because I think it was only just last week FIFA put out a media release uh, celebrating six years of VAR. Um, Amy Duggan, given Australia was an early adopter and sort of as a you know a top televised league in terms of the production, the A League was able to adopt it before a lot of the European competitions were, and we were used as a bit of a guinea pig out here. So our fans have had more time to get used to it than any others. If it's not going anywhere, what tweaks need to be done to VAR to stop us starting podcasts by going around the horn? <laughs> and all three of you have chosen VAR as your negative of, of the weekend. Yeah, I think I think um, ultimately our fans still are not massive fans of it, are they? So even though you know we've, we were early adopters, as you said, and we've had it for longer, I still don't think we're you know Australia really loves VAR. I don't know anyone that actually does. Even when it does work in your favour, I think you know you always think, oh, you know, thank God for it, but um, but you'd go without it in a heartbeat as long as the decisions are are fair enough. Do you know what I mean? I think we can handle human error and I think that's where it's okay on the pitch. And it's funny, Tate, because you do say, you know, there is a human behind that VAR element. I think it comes down, if you're going to tweak it, to um, minimising when you can use it. So rather than consistently reviewing the game all the time and going back over things and um, and taking ages and ages and ages, it, it's, it's uh, shortening or lessening the actual powers that it has and going back to the reliance on the referees. Um, and I think that's the only way you can, if, if it's here to stay, you can make it better and letting play go on and reviewing the goals after. But yeah, in the case, you know, again, interpretation comes into it so heavily. It's really hard to be able to train people to all think the same, isn't it? So you're always going to have that gray area and you're always going to have people that see things differently, especially when there's bias and fans. Well, the reason I asked you, Amy Harrison, about your career is you might have noticed at the Women's Euros all the VAR officials were men because so few women's football games have women VARs. It's probably an Australian, Kate Jakovic, who who might be the most experienced female VAR official in the world. But my question is, why do they insist on only having active refs as VAR? If you're too old, if you're physically unable to ref at the highest level, but you're a, a great decision maker... 
why haven't they broadened the pool? If, is it not a specialised position? And aren't they selling themselves short by only having active refs that can pass the fitness test as the same people who can sit in front of a screen? That, All that, hail tail. All hail yeah, tail. Yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> that, no, that's, great that's idea. Just, it's a great idea. Well, you know, uh, let, let's just leave that one uh, brewing on the Gagan pod because we've got so much to talk about. We're not going to spend the entire show talking about referees, especially when we have two... Uh, Matilda's capped internationals with us here in the pod. Let's get straight out to the new Allianz Stadium in Sydney on Tuesday night. Canada 2, Australia 1 coming from behind. Amy Harrison, as the uh, the current day player, uh, what was your uh, interpretation and analysis of the match? And Amy Duggan, you two can go to town on this one. <laughs> Take it away. Yeah, look, I thought it was a, a tale of two halves. I thought the first half um, was very good. It was aggressive from the front. I think that was definitely a message going into the game. And I think having someone like Caitlin Ford um, up there and the aggressiveness of, of Courtney Vine as well um, really helped in that. And they started high. They pressed on Sheridan. They pressed on pressed on both centre-backs. Obviously, we know that they were young and inexperienced. So I think that was really positive. Um, and you could tell that gave them energy. It gave them... Um, that little bit extra. And then when they did win the ball, they were so much higher up the field. So they could go and attack straight away. And I think that was a big positive. But then, uh, yeah, the second half, it just, they didn't, they didn't take that mentality back out there again. And it, and it really changed. And um, as soon as, you know, Canada got their goal, um, yeah, you could tell they really started to panic. I think what Canada learned from this was the travel um, coming to the World Cup. I think they've learned a lot on and off the field from some of their players that have travelled from university, trying to understand the, the sleep patterns, getting there. They're basically, they were trying to get a whole holistic approach on what they're going to do for the World Cup. So my question is, what have we learned, the Matildas, from these two matches? Well, I think ultimately, Bridgie, that depth is still an issue for us as far as our team goes. Um you know, was really exciting when this team was first announced to come out uh, to come home and play against Canada because we thought we would have all of our big stars here, bar Ellie, obviously, who still has an ACL. And I think, you know, uh, when the actual team list came out for the first game on Saturday and the list of injuries was so long uh, and then, you know, obviously Alana picked up an injury and I was sitting there thinking, Phew, we're a little skinny in defence as it is and, and now we've just lost our centre back as well. Um and then, you know, Ivy having to push back into, or Ivy Lewick having to push back into the, the centre back position um, to make Yallop obviously coming in in the back line last night for a while. Um, it, it, it's a worry for us. Uh, the travel, I think our girls are used to, Bridgie, and they know about it and they're ready to dig in. The depth is, is still an issue for Australia. Like Amy said, it really was a game of two halves when we have our best players out on that pitch and they are firing it can be really beautiful at the moment we're really struggling to get consistency with that core group of players being on the pitch together good answer another i've got one more for you then and you can you girls can put me in my place and you can tell me is to shut up looking at the second half in the game right i just i just felt that we looked underdone physically under uh, a little bit lacklustre mentally and didn't weren't up for the challenge and Canada just seemed to be able to turn a switch on from half time whatever was said and they totally changed the dynamics of the game and that was that was worrying because the longer the game went on for me we just looked to be getting a, a, not a yard two yards off the pace giving the ball away not concentrating so much and that, that was really really worrying yeah of course you look at physically and stuff and for us we are coming a majority of our players are coming off uh, a preseason, so they are fresh in terms of that physical endurance. Whereas the the Canadians, a lot of them do play um, in America as well, and I think they did, had a few college ones, so they're always fit. But um, yeah, look, it's it's frustrating to watch as well because we are so good, and like Amy just said, when we have those players on there that. Um, the experienced ones, and you can tell when the subs start to come in. Yes, the physical um, aspect really starts to starts to decline, but I think it's the mentality as well. You could see as soon as it, um, a few of the younger ones come on, the mentality really changes, and you could see for the second goal how easy Canada scored that goal. It, it was an assist from the centre-back. Yeah, like, Rose, Rose is in fantastic. In international football, it, yeah, she was incredible, yeah. but... Yeah, should that be happening in a, at international football? But for me, it's the, the experienced ones. And then when you make those changes in the depth, like Amy said, then it starts to become an issue. And, and that's where Canada really took it on from there. I mentioned the number of fans. We had 25,000 in Brisbane, 26,000 at Allianz. 
Um, win, lose or draw, there's there's a real fanaticism for this team and I think you had a bit of a, a first-hand experience witnessing some of that last night. Are, are you willing to take us, uh, yeah, I'll, take I'll us share into the stands and tell us what happened? <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, I had a little fan group of uh, you know young 12, 12- and 13-year-old girls with me last night. There were so many young girls there from so many teams and they were all dressed up in their um, team track suits and uh, it was wonderful. I did a bit of a lap around the stadium at one stage and just to see um, just to see you know so many people and so many the next generation just loving this team it was awesome and they had celebrity cam and the whole lot but um, you know the Matildas are renowned for loving their fans back and I think they left a few a little disappointed last night because literally for an hour after the game these young fans were down girls and boys down on the defense line waiting for signatures and posters and photos and um you know the girls spread themselves probably a little bit thinly last night compared to what they have previously um and I, I literally saw young girls leaving the stadium crying because they hadn't been able to get a signature or a photo with their favorite player now that, that's not on the players they can't be everywhere all the time and make everyone happy that we'd be there till it was well after 11 o'clock at you know that stage anyway 10 30 11 but um and it's a school night so you know us good parents have let our children now but um but yeah i think that that type of what i'm trying to say is that the level of impression that these matildas are having on the next generation and how much they're loved is not only heartwarming but has the ability to be heartbreaking um and i and i think that's something that our matildas are starting to realize too that they're not they were super disappointed after the game last night with the result. And it's not just them that they're playing for anymore. It is this massive wider cohort of fans and the next generation and their dreams that they're also playing for. The two Amys can't answer this question. Amy Harrison, an active player. Amy Duggan's on the board. So Bridgie, you're my only option. Tony G, the coach, where's he at? Uh, I've I've listened to everything he said. Obviously, he planted his flag before even taking questions in his very first media conference, talking about the number of players he had out injured. So always kind of ready with an excuse, is Tony G. Yeah. But uh, the, the heat's going to be going up, stay or go. I know that Spain held a dressing room revolt against Jorge Vilda and the RFEF backed him in and said, sorry, Spain's players, you got to live with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Netherlands, they had a revolt. Mark Parsons, out the door. And Martin Sjögren, he got let go after the Euros from Norway. So it's not unprecedented. A couple of teams going to the World Cup have either got big problems or managerial changes. What about Australia? Very, very good question. I've been put into the fire the cauldron here. Sorry, um, mate, but no, no, but it's listen, literally... It's, I'm not going to be unfair and ask an active player who still might make the squad about this. It's a results-based game. And going into World Cup, you want to be playing and winning your games. Now, I've, I've, I give um, TG the best opportunity when he first came in. I love the way he was animated. He spoke very well. And, you know, coming up against the teams like Germany and Holland where we, we you know, we got a heavy defeat early on, you're kind of thinking, right, OK, he's gone up against the big dogs, but we were and we should be one of the big dogs as well and competing in their matches uh, and that's when I started having self a bit of doubt and then like you say another excuse came with several players out or trying to bring a new generation in no we've got to focus on a World Cup and the results uh, the record I think is that the 12th 13th or 14th loss under his reign 13th yeah 13th yeah unlucky for some and I don't think it is very good preparation going in especially when you're on home soil getting beaten off Canada on two occasions alright by just one goal but the mannerisms of, of that last one when we, we couldn't see out the game I start asking question marks so if you're asking me would I make a change yes I would now uh, one last question because there were two Australians that had a win uh, in international football this weekend but they were playing for New Zealand Indy Riley we speak about depth Indy Riley's only 20 she deferred to New Zealand and Ali Green a former teammate of yours Amy at uh, Sydney FC she'd already made that switch they beat Mexico 1-0 uh, by the time this pod goes out they will have already played the Philippines but when we speak about the lack of depth and some of the youngsters coming through I mean New Zealand they're, they're using the World Cup I always think of Jamaica you, you'll remember this Bridgie when Jamaica qualified for the World Cup in 1998 all these English based players with Jamaican grandparents started coming out of the woodwork and saying hey let's play for Jamaica in a World Cup but Amy it's it's great for Ali and it's great for Indy but it's not great for Australia that um, New Zealand New Zealand got them before we did no, and, and when have we ever, you know, kind of said this, that we're losing 
Australian players to to New Zealand. You know, no disrespect to, to New Zealand at all, but they're focused, they're ready to go, and, and they're doing absolutely everything they can to to find someone with a, a New Zealand background, um, like we saw with with the Philippines, and, and like you've just said with Jamaica back in the day, but. Yeah, it's you just question why. Um, you know, talented players that we have that we've grown up in our leagues. Um, you know, India. I've, I've been in camp with her with with the national team, and you know, when I kind of heard this, I, I was I was shocked. I, I can't lie. Um, but yeah, you just you just wonder why. Obviously, we're we're trying to build that depth, and that's kind of the, the question mark with our national team at the moment. It, it is that depth, but then we're losing the players that we could use to not other nations, let alone our our, our New Zealand. Um, neighbors so yeah it's it's a good question I, I really don't know why and um yeah i think we need to keep these players for for our national team i guess australian men's football went through this in the 90s we had ante serich josip Simeonich. you know we watched christian vieri and you know he was in australia for a while i think italy were always going to get him but we, we always thought about what could have been especially when he said he played cricket and his hero was alan border growing up it's like ah oh, christian vieri you're an australian um Bridgie, uh, you would have, you would have seen this in in your own career though with uh, players who were wrestling about dual nationality and you know maybe an international manager finds out you know where their grandparents were from. The home nations always used to throw up funny things where people with no connection to Wales could choose Wales or Northern Ireland and play international football. I guess it, it's just one of those things where at, at some points in your career where you have to make that commitment. The, the rules were a lot tighter in your day though. Once you made a decision, you couldn't switch after you'd played for one. Yeah, yeah. well they were with you if you'd made the switch. But I was in a total dilemma when I was at Sunderland as a youth team player and doing doing good things and getting me opportunity to play in the reserves and Peter Reid England obviously had played for England Diego Maradona ran him ragged when he scored that wonder goal he was my manager and he was English my youth team coach was a Scottish guy called Rick Sprazier and they pulled me into the office and said listen who do you want to play for England or Scotland because they're going to play each other on Wednesday night and you've been selected for both nations now I didn't even know I had Scottish grandparents (laughs) and how the Scottish FA found out about it is bewildering that I actually rang my mother and said Am I, have, I, have we got any Scottish heritage she went no but your great great grandma's found on a doorstep so possibly and it was just such a shock now I obviously chose England because Peter Reid for one was my coach and he said if you don't choose England you'll not play for this club ever again and my Scottish coach Rick Sprazier who was Scottish said you won't play for the youth team ever again so I thought that's got to be a bonus get first team football over youth team um, now having looked back I probably would have had loads of Scottish caps because I didn't fulfil my potential and get any England caps I only got to the under 21 so there's the balance but there was also a lot of players that I knew when um, Jack Charlton was the manager of the Republic of Ireland if you drank a pint of Guinness, you were granted a passport to play for the Republic of Ireland back then when he changed the whole dynamics of their nation and got them playing so well, it was incredible. So it does go on. Um, I think the decisions are a lot harder these days um, than what they were back then. You do you do get a second chance these days because as long as it's not a major tournament like a, a continental championship or yeah. a World Cup qualifier or a World Cup, you can still make that one-time switch and uh, well, uh, certainly that option has been exploited or, or utilised, I should say, <laughs> by New Zealand. Now, one last quick one on women's international football. Amy, this morning, uh, if you're listening to this on the day we're recording Wednesday, we had two more teams punch their ticket to the Women's World Cup. Italy beat Romania 2-0. Fairly conventional win. They finished ahead of Switzerland in their group, who will go into the playoffs. We saw both those teams in the Euros. But the Netherlands... Iceland were clinging on to a nil-all draw only for the Netherlands to break their hearts in the 93rd minute. And it means that the Dutch, who were the runners-up at the 2019 World Cup, are now going to 2023. But uh, they they certainly made very hard work of it, and Iceland were just 90 seconds away from qualifying for the World Cup, which for a nation of their size would have been a phenomenal achievement. Yeah, I was actually watching this just before I, I jumped on the podcast, and yeah, I was in 92nd minute, and I'm thinking, <laughs> come on, like there was just cross after cross, and um, finally, yeah, my, my old teammate at PSV, Esme Brooks, she's she's come on the scene and. She, um, yeah, scored a late winner and off they go to the World Cup. Super happy for them. And they had a home game, so the, the Rania fans were, were wild over there. Um, a few of my friends actually were at the game. And, yeah, they were very happy, but it was close for them. They left it late, obviously, like you just touched on, Mark Parsons. Um, exited the, the national team setup, and they've, they've got a new um, head coach and a, a Dutch coach, which I think they're very fond of. Um, 
And yeah, now they can start preparing for the World Cup. But it was tough on Iceland. They pushed them all the way. And um, yeah, like you said, 90 seconds away, but uh, very happy for, for the Dutch to go through. And hopefully they can do something special at the World Cup too, uh, apart from the Matildas, of course. Yeah, I uh, I feel a little for Iceland in this because they, you know, we watched them as mm-hmm. we said the Euros, and I think there was a, a little bit of a, um, a that underdog feeling from the fans that wanted to see them do well. But it would be the weirdest World Cup without the Netherlands. I have to say that a team that has been, you know, in every major tournament and obviously won some silverware, and they were disappointing um, in the Euros, but. You know, they're one of those teams that it'd be like if Germany missed out when they did in the Olympics, it was bizarre not having them there. So I feel like they probably just historically because of form and because of the sort of side they are, um, deserve to be there. And I kind of want to see them line up against Serena again so that, um, you know, there's that little bit of healthy tension there too um, when they play England or if they play England again. Um, But good good to see them get through. But yeah, you got to feel a little bit for Iceland. And speaking of England, the WSL starts soon on Optus Sport, so make sure you check out the Optus Sport that, uh, for that. There was a season preview from Jesse Parker Humphreys, which was up this week, taking you through all the off-season signings and the players to watch, which is great. And England themselves, just very quickly, uh, Amy Duggan, they beat Luxembourg 10-0. Yeah. Uh, no surprises there. They played the hit. Celestia Russo started and scored, but Beth Mead scored. Beth England got back in after not seeing any game time at the Euros. Georgia Stanway with a double. Really, England, you know, they're becoming household names. They're becoming a big-ticket item. And I don't think anyone other than perhaps the unfortunate Luxembourgers would have minded that they turned on the style and won 10-0 this morning. Oh, it's just, it's great to see goals. I never like to see a team get thumped 10-0, and especially if you're on the losing end of that. But I tell you what, when you're putting them away with ease and almost sharing them with your teammates or setting up your teammates for fun, it's a great feeling when you're out there. It's coming home. It's coming (laughs) home. It's coming (laughs) Bridgie, I heard that for a month. That, that's <laughs> the thing, Bridgie. Are, are they are they still the women's team getting the cut through with the Premier League and Champions League in full swing, or are they a little bit back on the back burner, or have they been able to sort of maintain their presence that when the England women's team play, it's still a big deal? Yeah, still a still a huge deal. And you know, the the scenes in Trafalgar Square after they won the Euros was absolutely incredible. I mean, I was on holiday in in um, Palma with the family, and we watched the final, and it was just incredible um, to witness. And finally, I can you know, being an, a, a three lions um, person, to see an England team actually win something and deliver, and finally say it is coming home, it was amazing. And yeah, it's it's still huge over here. The girls are still getting huge credit credit uh, as they well deserve and. Obviously, like you said, the WSL is starting up again very, very soon. And it's, you know, the, the whole nation yet again is, is getting right behind um, the girls on and off the field, which is great because it's thoroughly deserved. They're getting behind them because they've already sold more than 65,000 tickets in less than 24 hours to watch England play the USA next month. And I think that'll be an absolute... I'm going to be like wide-eyed and watching it too, let me tell you, because that will be an absolute corker. And um, I think the real... Uh, question that everyone has in their head is can England become the eventual number one and knock USA out of this position that they've held for so long and there's been a lot of teams that you think have the capacity to do it but do you do you really believe it's going to happen and this is probably the first time at the moment I've believed I reckon England can probably do it. Let's move on to the Champions League now because it was a huge morning for us in Australia. Ange Postacoglu's Celtic hosting the trophy holders and most times winner Real Madrid. The first half was electric, but Celtic didn't score. And in the second half, Real Madrid's class showed going on to win 3-0. Michael Bridges, you were watching the game, as was I. What did you make of Ange Postacoglu's first Champions League night? Do you know what it is? I, I love Ange. I love listening to him as well. He was talking about, you know, what was he going to change his tactics? What's he going to do? And and he he, he just got rid of the journalists. He said, "Listen, this is. I'm not going to shatter people's dreams. This is this is what dreams are made of. These opportunities. We're going to go into it." full swing as I'd normally do and the first half performance from Celtic was outstanding McGregor hitting the post there was chances left right and centre that they just squandered and the difference between the elite teams and the elite players in the world is that they will take their opportunities as they did like Luka Modric at the other end they just they weren't outclassed 
the game was absolutely balanced and I thought Celtic, you know, they can hold their heads very high, Ange and all his staff and the players, but they were just outclassed in them final defining moments in front of the in front of the um, the goal. And that's what defi- that's that, that's why Real Madrid have won so many Champions Leagues, that's why they're up there. Um I thought they had a huge opportunity as well, Celtic when Benzema went off early doors. And that you know, but Eden Hazard's come on. He's managed to get himself a goal. But I just thought it was a very, very spirited performance. And I'd much rather, as a fan and as a neutral, watch a Celtic team go and perform like that, rather than just sit in and defend and say, "Can you? Can you beat us?" Ange is back in his team. He's back in his dynamics, and the players bought into it and they put on an amazing show. Even though it was three 0 who cares? It was awesome. Yeah, and and three 0 is probably not reflective of how the competition was, especially in that first half. I actually thought Celtic could have been up two 0 at one stage, yeah. and like you said, it was just about not taking chances. And I then I just thought the two goals in five minutes changed the game, um, not just the scoreline, but changed the game um, a little bit. They still came out firing, and and you're right, Bridgie. It's so awesome to see a team just go. We're just going to give everything we have. We're going to put the pressure on. We're going to play out of our skin and we're just going to give this a red hot go rather than say oh we might not win this we're going to park the bus and see what happens so um but hats off to Modric because um you know the goal was just the composure that he showed especially with the second one was outstanding speaking of Croatia it's a great day for them uh, at least if you're a Dinamo Zagreb fan not maybe not if you're a fan of one of their arch rivals but still I think uh, flying the flag on the European stage in one of the earlier kickoffs which was in the wee hours uh, Australian time this morning Dinamo Zagreb beat Chelsea 1-0 more frustration for Thomas Tuchel who was ropeable during the game ropeable after the game Bridgie uh, I, I suspect in the Abramovich era Thomas Tuchel might have been fired by now he's probably been given a bit more leeway with Todd Bowley being the new owner what did this game say about Chelsea but also what did it say about Dinamo Zagreb and their ability to shake up that group well you talk about fans and wanting to play in front of a stadium Dinamo Zagreb was absolutely going crazy the fans are out in full force they were up for it and it reflected because the players you talk about Ange and his style with Celtic going out there and having a crack well the tactics were completely the opposite sitting deep in a back five with a midfield four one up top and then we will try and counter attack and that's exactly what they did it was a master class in defending I thought the mentality the tackles they, they didn't have anything left their captain went off twice with cramp came back on and was still making last last ditch tackles to prevent Sterling from getting on the score sheet Mason Mount and you could just see the frustration of the Chelsea players brewing because they could not get any opportunities in front of goal they were starting to get frustrated and kicking out and it was interesting looking at Thomas Tuchel on the sideline he never moved he just sat there with his hand on his chin thinking because the first half he was just scribbling away he had an A4 sheet of paper of problems to try and dissect (laughs) but in the second half he was just shell-shocked and looked lost and kind of ran out of ideas. They changed all the system. They brought brought defenders on to try and change it so that it get a bit more width in the play. Um, midfield, they, they just Jorginho came on. They couldn't dissect them, and I thought fair play. I was so delighted they hung on because eight minutes went up, and you were just like, oh, there's going to be a goal from somewhere. They couldn't find it, and credit to them. And the pressure's on Tuchel. He's been they spent a lot of money. They've lost three in a row now, and yeah, going there and losing that game is not not good for his CV, especially when you think of his Champions League record. Well, we'll get to the managerial sack race when we talk Premier League, but we might have to now staple Thomas Tuchel's name onto it. Just on that, Dominic Lavakovic, the Zagreb keeper, he was fantastic. And Mislav Orsic, the goal scorer, if his name sounds familiar, it's because he was scoring against Melbourne Victory in the Asian Champions League only about three years ago when he was playing in the K-League. So his amazing rise in his late 20s continues on. Just uh, a couple more Champions League results. Uh, Amy Duggan, I want to get your, your thoughts on Erling Haaland. Two more goals. Sevilla beaten 4-0 at home by Manchester City. He's just a cheat code at this point, Erling Haaland. He, he's, uh, he gave us the, the community shield as a bit of rope-a-dope, and then he's just absolutely socked everyone he's played ever since. I, I really do think he's the, he is the missing piece for City to just do the job on everyone at the moment. I feel like it's going to be third time lucky for them. Of course, they lost to Chelsea and then to Real Madrid last season. The 
they're drawn in a group which should see them go through. We're actually going to see Harlan reunite um, against his former Bundesliga employers, which I think is really cool. Um, they had no issues, did they? Like I know Sevilla's had a really bad start to the season, obviously coming off a 3-0 thumping to Barcelona as well. They wouldn't have um, probably felt like they had a chance in this one, but... Hey, I just, I don't even know what to do. It's like, it's, I don't even know what you would do as a defender. How do you defend him? You just know that he's going to score goals, don't you? Amy Harrison, I, I wanted to ask you about one more game, which was PSG's 2-1 win against Juventus. The the dynamic and the link-up between Neymar and Mbappe, particularly the assist for the first Mbappe goal, that's got to be a good sign for PSG, doesn't it? The, this dressing room full of egos, uh, you know, Messi's in, in there as well, and, and so much of last season was just dogged by the fact that they weren't getting along. I mean, whether you like PSG or not, it was scintillating football to watch those two goals hit the back of the net, and Mbappe was looking back to his 2018 best. Yeah, he was, and I think finally now, Neymar, obviously, he didn't have the, the greatest of seasons last year, but he has started on fire, and when you have a good Neymar, I think Mbappe reaps the rewards of that too, and how crazy is it? We, we talk about PSG, and we didn't even have to mention Messi there. It's it's pretty scary, um, but their goals, the, the dink over the, the back line that Neymar had and, and their assist for the second goal as well was just passing in and around the box, quick passing, and when you have Mbappe and Neymar passing around and having a, a fun time like that, I don't think there's many defenders in the world that could come close to them and, and stop them. Um, Juventus obviously couldn't even keep up with that, and, and that's Juventus. So um, I think, yeah, they're going to have a field day in, in League One, but Champions League, that's definitely what they need to, to focus on. And I think PSG, and they've all made it very well known that um, Champions League is, is the trophy that they're going for, and they've started very well. Well, they have Mbappe's, you know, two first-time goals were just eek, outstanding. But also that's 12 goals in 15 games for him now. So if he can keep that up, I don't know. He's no Haaland. <laughs> Maybe I can say that. I don't know if I can. Can you say that? I, no, I can't. Really? I can't. Definitely, I can't say that. But, um, you know, they're, they're, it'll be, it's such an interesting uh, comparison, isn't it? Stay with us here on the Gegen Pod. We've got Premier League, La Liga, some of the big talking points out of those two competitions, and also a bit of Aussies overseas as well. Stay with us here on the Gegen Pod. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to the Gegen Pod. With us today, we've got former Premier League star Michael Bridges, active and current uh, capped Matilda Amy Harrison and former Matilda Amy Duggan as well. It's time to talk Premier League. Amy Duggan, I feel as though you need to come out and take a bit of a victory lap as the resident Manchester United fan because... Do, do, do. Four wins on the trot now. <laughs> what I want to know is, how did this turnaround happen so suddenly after the losses to Brighton and Brentford? It looked like Eric Ten Hag was a misfire and now he's masterminded wins against both Liverpool and Arsenal. You know, I was thinking about this all week. What has he actually done? And you know what it comes back to? Remember he made them run like marathons after 13 kilometres. I know. I'm like, and he joined I wonder in. if that's what was like. Yeah, I know he joined in, but I'm, I'm, I wonder if that was actually what twisted this. Um, the mentality of I do not want to have my day off ruined every single week <laughs> and go for a half marathon. So um, I don't. Honestly, I just think they've started to click. I think I'm going to be horrible and say Ronaldo moving to the bench is part of it. Um, Ericsson is finding form. I think it takes a few weeks for that kind of culture to change and set in, um, bringing in, you know, the couple of players that they did through the transfer window. Obviously, Anthony, very smart. Um, Casemiro, you know, they've strengthened and bolstered this and it's starting to pay off. And if they can keep clicking like this, I will be one very happy, smiling fan. Do you know what I'm delighted with? He's made big decisions. He's dropping Ronaldo, dropping Maguire, 
the backing the players that are in there, the new signings that have come on board. And I, what I really respect about him, the Dutch philosophy, play out at all costs. He's realised in the you know in the Eredivisie you can do that. You can dominate week in, week out with Ajax. He's realised early on that when you're trying to play out against a Brentford, you're going to get torn apart if you can't do it at the right moments. And I respect a manager that can go away from what he believes in to just change it up to get the best out of teams that they're playing against when it was coming up against your Liverpools and your, your Arsenals and playing a bit different counter-attacking football. I salute the man. I, I pay credit to that and I think tactically he knows exactly what he's doing when I compare the likes of him as a manager to your Frank Lampard's at Everton who I've watched when they played Leeds last week. I couldn't watch him ever again. They're my new team that I will shut the curtains if they're playing in my front garden. It was They're, they're a disgrace. They're so, the successes to Burnley, Bridgie. Yeah, they're the other successes to Burnley, Everton under Lampard. But I say Ten Hag, I salute him for everything that he's done. Big decisions, signings they've made, and tactically he's changed it up and he's gone against his kind of beliefs, but he's ensured that it's keeping in the right direction for Manchester United. Yeah, he's changed his philosophy to get the best out of the players that he has yeah. on the paddock and what they're capable yeah. of. And how many coaches won't do that? Lots. That's the downfall at times. Speaking of coaches in a, a bit of a philosophical uh, sort of quagmire at the moment, Brendan Rodgers, uh, Leicester City, they are bottom of the league, one point for the season and hammered 5-2 by Brighton at the weekend. Steven Gerrard, Aston Villa continue to underwhelm even after getting a draw off Liverpool and they play each other this weekend live on Optus Sport. What a huge match. Bridgie. Uh, I mean, even between now and the weekend, I wouldn't be surprised if Leicester dropped the communicado official about Brendan Rodgers. Uh, Darren Lewis on uh, Optus Sport Programming uh, from the UK was talking about how he thinks that Rodgers will agree a, a mutual termination at some point in the next week or two and doesn't want to see this project out. I mean, what? is there any chance Leicester beat Villa and, and then flip the flip the tables and then it's Steven Gerrard who's closest to the exit door? I hope Aston Villa absolutely smash them because I'm a big fan of Steven Gerrard. I know Amy will be being a Liverpool fan as well. You don't want to see, you know, he's a Liverpool legend, but to go into coaching, I still think what he did at Rangers was tremendous. I'd like to see him get the get the result against Leicester. And I would like to think that Brendan Rodgers and them could come up with a mutual decision or he gets sacked and he can walk away with his money that he deserves because of his, his time there and the way that he has had his whole team obliterated from under his nose you think you go into the start of a season or the end of last season and you're thinking right where can we go boys next season and then you lose one player one of your best players then you lose a second then you lose a third and then Fafana goes and he falls out what, what, what chance have you got when you get to bring in one signing so if I, I, I don't know how Rodgers has kept his cool um, I would I would have resigned a couple of weeks back to be honest with you if I was in his position but I would have lost out on the money there so I would have quite happily sat tight and waited for the opportunity to come up with a mutual decision. I would not want to be there. I feel for Brendan Rodgers, and um, I know Leicester owners went through a, a massive, massive tragedy in the family a few years back, and then obviously COVID impacted their their business with the, um, oh, what do you call it, the duty-free at the airports, because you know there was nobody around for two or three years. I understand they're trying to recoup some money, but it's, I just feel for Brendan Rodgers. It's out of his hands and, um, yeah, go on Aston Villa, take them to the cleaners. Amy Harrison, as Bridgie flagged there, do you want Steven Gerrard to turn this around or do you fear that with Villa four points from six games, they're only sitting outside the relegation zone on goals scored at the moment? Is the end nigh for Stevie G at, at Villa and, and could this be a major setback to his ambitions of perhaps one day managing Liverpool? I absolutely want him to do well. Uh, it's hard seeing him, um, you know, the way he is at the moment. But to me, he still looks relaxed. He looks like he's trusting the process. And I do think the Villa players are a fan of him. Um, I think the club will stick by him for as long as they can. They obviously allowed him a lot of cash in the, in the transfer windows to, to go and get players. And, you know, we know as players as well, it, it takes time to, to come to terms with new environments. There's a fair few um, non-English players as well. So it takes time to acclimatise to, to weather um, the style of play and obviously he is a footballing um, manager that wants to play he wants that aggressiveness and it's hard to just flick a switch and have that um, it takes time for, for the players to, to come together and like I said I think the 
the club will give him as much time as possible. Um, and I think they will turn it around. Like Bridgie just said, I think they'll they'll get a win on the weekend. Hopefully it's a, a big win and it's a statement. And then he can kind of just go to, to managing without the noise around him. But um, big fan of him and I, I hope he does well. I hope they win and, and then they can get some momentum. And that's the hardest thing to get as a, as a club and as a team but when you got it, it's it's lovely. So hopefully they can stick onto that and, and ride the wave as long as possible. Well, you mentioned some of the money spent. Losing Diego Carlos to an Achilles injury was also devastating given the amount of money they'd spent to bring him in from Sevilla, player in the prime years of his career, supposed to stand at centre-back and then out, not just uh, for the long term. He's going to miss the World Cup with Brazil as well. Amy Duggan, one of your least favourite managers, Frank Lampard <gasps> at Everton. He's he's oh, on the hot seat. not my least favourite. I just think one he's of, cranky. One of. Well, he should be cranky because his team is now winless uh, along with Leicester, but they've managed to at least draw four of the six games. Wolves got their first win uh, squeaking up to six points as well at the lucky, weekend. Lucky, they were but, lucky. Oh, they, they mm-hmm. were lucky. But Everton, I mean... They're sitting outside the relegation zone, at least, but without a win on the board, you can't draw your way to safety, can you? Well, I don't think so. Has anyone ever done that before? I need what, had a winless season and stayed up? No. <laughs> I, 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 I don't need I don't to look at the history so. books to say, no, they haven't. So. I, think you need above, I think you need above that many points if my maths is 40 is the magic I've number. I've never seen it happen before. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, no. Uh, no, they will not be able to draw their way to safety. They're going to have to start picking up some wins. Of course, it was a an improved performance against Liverpool, but um, I don't think Liverpool were at their best at, at that stage either. Yeah, they've got to find something. They have to find something again, and they're going to have to do it quickly because obviously there's a shortened, you know, transfer windows closed now. There's a shortened amount of time before we're all going to be taking a break. Maybe it's that break they need um, to reset with their with their squad and, and come out in that the next part of the season after the World Cup break to to get things done. But they're in trouble, and he's in trouble. I think he's in big trouble, and yeah. I haven't watched him and observed him for ninety minutes in the match against Leeds United to see how calm and collective he would be. Are you never going to watch be. him again? Well, no, but I'd love to watch Frank Lampard again because all he did is argue with the fourth official for every single decision that went on instead of giving his players the direction that they were after. And they were looking at the bench, seeing him getting all cranky with the fourth official. It was spreading to the players. The bench became animated and the Leeds bench were just laughing at them and Jesse Marsh was tapping his watch and I just looked and I thought that's a man that's lost control he, he looks massively under pressure yeah there's some there's some issues on the inside there isn't there and when you're looking for blame left right and yeah. centre and when you can't stay composed or at least hold it together you know and, and you've got to give hats off to to to, to Tuchel, you said that, you know, he's sitting on the bench with his hand over his face. At least he's not, you know, screaming and blaming acting and, and tool, looking for yeah. excuses and acting, yeah, mm. acting like an idiot. But I think, you know, pressure does crazy things to people and you're starting to see that emerge now. Just the one game I want to talk about this weekend. Spurs have still got to play Marseille in the Champions League between now and the wee hours of Sunday morning. But if you're going to pull through, this is the one to pull through for. 2.30am Australian Eastern kickoff, live and exclusive on Optus Sport. Spurs go to the Etihad to take on Manchester City. Michael Bridges, is this the moment that Tottenham announced themselves under Antonio Conte as part of the title race? Could they even perhaps replace Liverpool as the second banana in the title race chasing Manchester City. The more teams involved in the title race, the better it is for the league. I'm all for that. But consider I'm a Spurs fan and this team coming up against Man City, four wins for Spurs, one draw and two losses in the last seven games against City. But now City have Haaland. That's what scares me. <laughs> they will take their opportunities. But if any, t- it's going to be a cracking game, no doubt about it. Um, both teams have recruited very, very well. Massive admirers of both managers for so many different reasons. And the quality of the two strikers and Harry Kane and Haaland that are going to be on display. Uh, just amazing. It's mouth-watering. And if you know, the, it's, Tottenham is a little bit of a bogey team for Manchester City in the last few matches, as I've just discussed. So bring it on. We are back in contention. Spurs are up there. The two Amys, what's your predictions? I know Spurs have still got to play Marseille and anything could happen in that game, but Uh, is this Tottenham's moment to announce themselves as title contenders? I think it's their first big test, isn't it? It's their big, well, their biggest test yet. Uh, I think Son needs to get back into some form. Um, he hasn't been on the the goal scoring sheet like we're used to seeing um, last season. But for me, it's all about the defence of Haaland. Um, ultimately, if he gets in behind or if he even gets the ball at his feet near the box, you, you know he's going to hit the target. He's so efficient with even um, 
you know, just a couple of touches. So how they choose to defend him, I think, will be crucial to how they go in this match. They, they have the strike power up front. We've got, you know, Harry Kane. We've listened to me like I'm on Tottenham's team. Um, Tottenham has the, the strike learning. power up front. Oh. Um, <laughs> they're, they're creative enough. They're aggressive enough. I, I think that they can compete. But for me, the difference here will be how they defend Haaland. Yeah, I think Harlan is obviously flying at the moment, but for me, he's the smartest man in the world. If I'm a striker, I'm going to, to wherever De Bruyne is playing. He puts on a platter for, for Harlan. Obviously, he's so good, his movement off the ball, his strength, but to have a player like De Bruyne behind you, you're going to score goals for fun. Um, for me, yes, you can try and block out Harlan's presence, but then you've just got De Bruyne, you've got Bernardo Silva, the endless amount of players at City that can just cover for someone if they're blocked out of the game. And for me, Tottenham, sorry, Bridgie, that they're going to do well. They'll give them a good fight. They are their bogey team, but I just don't see City dropping points anytime soon. I don't see them not scoring goals, and defensively, we know they are strong too. So it'll be a close game. I hope it. I hope it's a draw. I love when City drop points, but. I think they'll get some points here. Amy H, I can't wait to send you a Twitter message saying, unlucky. <laughs> I'll block you. I'll block you. you. <laughs> Whatever this result is, you're blocked. <laughs> well, on the subject of Haaland, let's uh, flip over to La Liga chat now because the team they obliterated in the Champions League, Sevilla, are winless in their first four games. This is a team that finished fourth last season in La Liga. Uh, Barcelona came to town and smashed them at the weekend as well. Uh, Monkey or Monchi, I should say, their sporting director, is uh, having to go and calm down the fans and, and try to placate them with uh, post-match talks. Uh, Julian Lopetegui, uh, Bridgie, you flagged earlier, he might be heading for the exit door. Yeah. Sevilla are one of the most serial winners, albeit of the Europa League or UEFA Cup, but they know how to win. They're a club that also kind of knows their limitations. How different is it going to be them for now that they find themselves in a relegation battle? There's no way a team of this quality should be starting this poorly to the season. Could it be a case that we're sitting here in a month and they will have finally snagged a few wins and turned it around? Or could Champions League interruptions midweek actually exacerbate the problem they find themselves in? Well, it's just showing you how much it's hurt them in the Champions League already. Lopetegui is under huge, huge pressure. Um, I was speaking to a couple of journalists actually that are working over there and they were just saying they found that he's become very predictable in his patterns of play um, they, they, they try to do the obviously he's from the Barcelona philosophy with the press he's saying they're yards off the pace he doesn't know whether they're not up to their, their kind of fitness levels that they're needing for this season doesn't know what's disrupted them but teams have found a way to break them down very easily now if you think about Sevilla under Unai Emery they were absolutely awesome and they went on a massive, you know, they were always contenders for the, the Cups um, in the Europa League. And, and it's the come down must be horrendous for the fans. And hence why they've been allowed to vent their frustration and anger towards the players and the and the staff. Because they've never, I can't, can't imagine them ever being in this position um, since I've been alive. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I've never well, known it. That's, that's th- funny because it's 40 years. It's actually 40 years. It's their worst start oh. in 40 years, Bridget. Well, I was just that, a wee so, baby. I was just, you know, I'm only quite. 39. <laughs> <laughs> so, so four weeks in, obviously, a single point. They did have to apologise to their fans on the weekend. Their captain wasn't shying away from that. They had fans holding the white hanky out. They've been yeah. standing behind the bench yelling out, out, out to the coach and to the president. Like they're they're very passionate and they expect more. And um, I found you know you know mainly with the stats, I like to go a little bit deeper and say, well, what is the story behind this? And um, they've said if you're not effective when you have the ball, you're not the better team because ultimately football is about goals. So in their four games this season, I just want to throw these possession stats out to you. They've had 69, 61, 66, and 61 percent of possession. So they have had the majority of possession in their games. They've had 51 shots on goal. Guess how many they've put away? Three, three in the first four. So they're not being efficient. And, and I think I was like, well, what is what else is going on here? There's got to be more to this. I think it's to do with their defense. I think obviously they've lost a couple of players, big name players this year too. Um, the keepers changed. Their new defensive signing, which they brought in, hasn't started for them um, yet. On top of that, their coach is even saying, Bridgie, they're not fit. They're not conditioned. They had a That's, really bad preseason. Big talk from the journalists over there saying it's been horrendous. Yeah. They, they can't achieve the levels that he wants to do with the press. 
Yeah, so, you know, there's plenty of room for improvement there, but their worst start in 40 years. It's bad. And they play Espanol on the weekend. So, you know, after their upset win, it's not looking good, is it? Do you know when you're under pressure and I was, I was, uh, Tan Hag was able to change it for Manchester United for a positive and counteract like tactically? Lopetegui has been changing the back the the back line nearly every week and formation wise, and it's really affecting them. So that's when you're thinking you're looking for a solution. I remember Arsenal last season, the first three games that Arsenal played, they lost they lost the first three, and Arteta didn't have the same back line due to illness, sickness, suspensions, and injuries. And then once they got that solid base and they understood the best lineup at the back, Lopetegui hasn't found that yet. That's why they're leaking goals. Now, in, in stark contrast, Villarreal, they are the only team in the top seven UEFA-ranked leagues not to have conceded a goal so far this season. They're sitting third, so Real Madrid, Barcelona, perhaps understandably, have now just uh, moved up, cream rising to the top, to the top of the table. But this weekend on Optus Sport, Villarreal against Real Betis. That is going to be a must-watch, I would say, if you're getting into La Liga and you want to know a bit more about this competition, not least because uh, Betis only narrowly lost to Real Madrid at the weekend. It's 5am on Monday as well, so one you can perhaps watch as you get ready for work on Monday. But Villarreal, uh, they very nearly uh, shocked Liverpool in the Champions League semi-finals last season. Obviously, they put all their eggs in the Champions League and finished seventh in La Liga, so they're not going to be there again. But I guess we've seen their quality, haven't we? And it, it perhaps shouldn't come as a surprise that Unai Emery, as much as it didn't work out in Arsenal, being able to speak Spanish and communicate in his native tongue, he continues to get results. And, and this team are now the number one contender to the top two of Real Madrid and Barcelona. Yeah, like you said, with their, their face-off against Betis, it, it'll be third versus fourth. And obviously, we're always looking towards Barcelona and Real Madrid. But Villarreal are starting to become into that conversation. And for me, they've, they've been excellent. Like we just touched on with Sevilla, defensively, they've been horrible. It's the flip side, and Villarreal have been excellent. Um, they're a well-structured team. We know now Emery is a, a very well-structured manager and um, he, I think he came out and said that the emphasis for, for him has been on Europa League and European leagues as of late. But this season with Villarreal, he's, he's you know come out public in, publicly and said that La Liga is the focus. We want to be in the conversation of the Barca and Real Madrid's and so far he's, he's done perfectly. Nine goals scored and had a clean sheet every game and the only club in Europe to have that at the moment and, and that's saying something it's a big statement the big challenge will come when they play Barca on the 19th yeah. of October they can get a really good run together now until they face Barca or Madrid they can get a lovely little points buffer they're going to be in the top three I would imagine and who knows what they can do against Barca because like Unai Emery big fan of his what he does defensively he's got them and he's also got players that are also rejects from other clubs playing so well Lo Celso I never thought anybody could get him playing when he left Tottenham but um, Unai's managed to get it done. So um, La Liga, fantastic this season. Are you again. goggles on again? <laughs> no, 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 not at all. <laughs> well, as we bring the gig and pot home with a bit of Aussies overseas chat, we have to start in La Liga because while we've touched on some of the good and the bad, one story that is that is turning ugly is our Mobile at Cadith. Left out of the squad altogether, there were rumours that he was perhaps uh, seeking a loan move to either Portugal or Belgium right on the transfer deadline that didn't come to fruition. This leaves him really in a tough, a tough spot to get game time ahead of the World Cup. He's kind of found himself trapped until the next window and in a bit of a wilderness at the moment. So... Bridgie, Cadith, they're one of the worst teams in Europe at the moment. Uh, they're rock bottom of La Liga and looking pretty uncompetitive in a lot of the games that they're playing. Uh, whether Mobile has played or come off the bench or not featured at all, it hasn't really made a difference to their fortunes. This is not a good situation for a Socceroo that we thought was going to get some uh, some decent game time in a top five league. No, I mean, not to get the loan move through, not to get a move when you know you're out of favour. The only thing I will say about Mobile, stay there, keep working the hardest you can work, try and change the coaching staff's mindset and hope that the main manager gets the sack because they're on a terrible run of form a new manager could come in, um, and I hope he does, and put a whole new spin because you just never know. One one manager's loss is another manager's gain, and he, he might get another opportunity because he is going to be stuck, like you say. You, you, you need to be playing game time before the World Cup. I really feel for him. He's in a horrible situation. Um, I was in a similar situation with Phil Brown at Hull City before I moved to Sydney FC, where I was out of favour, and I managed to get the deal done before the window. 
and get out of there. Otherwise, I would have been rotten for six months. So I hope um, not. we're not going to see Mobile not get game time, but there is still a positive light. Get the manager sacked. <laughs> It's you know what I think that might be coming regardless of whether Mobile is hoping for it or not, given how Kadith are going. Yeah. Uh, more Aussies overseas. Uh, Iden Rustic, we did flag last week. Verona was going to be the move for him. He was an unused sub on the weekend, uh, but perhaps that's due to acclimatising. He's on a deal now until 2026. Verona very excited about bringing him in. Amy Duggan, when we flagged this last week, it, we thought it was a good move, and hopefully Iden Rustic will be getting game time as soon as this weekend. Yeah, uh, it was good to see Verona get a win on the weekend against Sampdoria. Um, would have been better to see him on on the pitch, but I think it'll happen very soon. I, I honestly just think it's a matter of time and getting him in, getting him to have some time with the boys under his belt, see how they play, um, soak it up, throwing someone in, you know, three days after they sign. Um, I guess you can, like a lot of clubs do do it, but I don't think it's the best move for especially a young player like this. So I, I think we'll see him in the not-too-distant future. We saw Sasha Kaladzic for Wolves tear his ACL in his very first appearance, and that's after they did rush him in after signing yeah. him on deadline day. So it's an excellent point. But uh, Verona, their next match is away to Lazio, so they'll be in for a very tough contest. But there's one more... Aussies, not quite overseas yet story, but potentially overseas, which I wanted to get to. And Amy Harrison is someone who's only recently come back to Australia from the Netherlands. What do you make of the headlines connecting Garen Quoll, the Central Coast Mariners youngster, with some of the biggest clubs and biggest teams and opportunities in the world? How did that headline grab you when you saw that he could be on for a, a massive both a transfer fee, but also opportunity to move and he's barely even 18? Yeah, how exciting. I was actually with, with Amy when um, she showed me it and we both were, were in awe of it. Um, how exciting. Obviously, the whole family is, is so talented. Um, but for Australian football, like this would be massive for him to go to a club like Barcelona. You, you just imagine. But rightfully so. Like we have these players. We have the, the talent here and he is a representation of that. His whole family is. And I hope it, I hope it comes to fruition. Yeah, can I just go back on this um, a little bit, Toe, because they, this whole family is outstanding and um, obviously we've watched them come through the ranks and you said they're from the Central Coast, but can I just say they've actually come from Victoria in the little town of Shepparton, playing for the Shepparton Suns. Um, they get better and better as they, they come along and I don't think this will be the last qual name that we see um, have success. It is exciting, but Bridgie, there's also some cautionary tales here. I straight away thought of Seb Pasquale going to Ajax. Didn't work out. He played some youth team football, but he's since come back to the A-League and he's barely featured for Western United since coming back to Australia. So there is that element of too much too soon. If you were advising Garang Quoll, what would you suggest? Uh, do you go to a super club and play in the youth team? Do you wait for a different, maybe Eredivisie, maybe Belgium, maybe Portugal? Or is it purely about the manager or the managers of the youth teams that are in charge, regardless of the name on the badge? See you later. Get out of there ASAP. Um, play with play play with players that are in a different calibre. Um, you and and go and learn your trade and somewhere you've got the best facilities in the world and maximise it and use that to your ability because the the ed, your football education will develop so much quicker. Um, and and you know having a mentor like Nick Montgomery that knows what it's all about a play at a young age, I think that's fantastic. He will all be for allowing it to happen or trying to make something happen and giving him advice. Um, hopefully not listening too much to an agent where they want to go for the biggest money to just get them there. I'm sure he'll be able to bounce questions off Nick to say, listen, this is what I'm about. You know how I play. Does this club suit me? Is it going to suit my style of play? I think Matty Ryan's a great example of how he went about his business and he went around different areas in, uh, in the way he he did it. Um, it was a different kind of pathway and a one that worked for him. He had good advice. And I just think, yeah, get yourself out as quick as you can, but make sure it's the right move for that player's style and at the right time and you're going to the right club where they're going to look after their players on and off the field. And, and Amy, just to finish the Garen Quoll chat, I mentioned that you've come back from the Netherlands. As far as the, the culture shock and, and the adjustment for, for any given Australian, it's always a different experience, you know, whether you have a, a supportive club or a supportive manager or one that's, you know, doesn't, maybe didn't want to sign you or there's been a managerial change, it can totally change the 
the lens of how you interpret that overseas move. But give us some insight into to your experience in the Netherlands and, you know, exactly how big a culture shock and a difference it is to go and play professionally over in Europe. Yeah, it is it is a big culture shock. Um, for me, it definitely was. Um, you're going into a country where, yeah, they speak English, but they don't speak it as their first language. So, uh, you know, you're learning new um going to new grocery stores obviously for me the football part was easy because you get on the field you play football yes there's different languages and you got to get up to speed with that but it's everything around um playing football living finding apartments like i said new grocery stores um finding new friends um and just living wise for me it was it was a culture shock but i think the more you adapt to the culture you're in you try and learn the language you Um, you know, get out of your comfort zone sooner rather than later, I think it will really benefit you on the field. And I think, you know, I've always said if you're happy and enjoying yourself off the field, you've got good support around you um, and you're in a good environment, on the field you'll flourish. And unfortunately I have heard stories where it just doesn't work out that way. Um, Luckily enough for me, I was at a really good club at at PSV and a really supportive family-oriented club you know for me it was <clears throat> I was there during COVID so it, it was difficult I couldn't see family or a lot of restrictions but um, luckily enough you know my coaches assistant coaches um, family of my friends who were inviting me in have dinner um, taking me out to places and you know it's it's an experience of a lifetime for me I will 100% be back in the Netherlands at some point um, you make friends for life you make experiences that are priceless. Um, the football obviously is, is what you do as your job there. And for me, it was, you know, a highlight of, of my career. But even just for me as a person, it teaches you so much. It, it exp- The experience you learn and the knowledge that you gain as a player and as a person, it, you just can't pick it up anywhere else if you don't go out and um, commit 100% and um, to the full experience on and off the field. So, I think, yeah, you really have to buy into it. You really have to, you know, take it and, and run with it and um, just give everything and you'll get everything back. Well, Garen Quall turns 18 next Thursday. So uh, he'll be able to make that move in the next transfer window. Watch this space. It's a pretty exciting time. And Amy, thank you for your insights into what he can uh, potentially expect uh, in both a football and a culture sense when he does make that move wherever it may be. That's it for the Gegen Pod this morning, but there's some really great content on Optus Sport which you should check out before games kick off this weekend. In 2021, Rebecca Stott, the um, former Melbourne City player and now back in the WSL, also New Zealand international, was diagnosed with stage 3 Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, although her cancer is now in remission and she's back on the football field, the New Zealand veteran has gone above and beyond in her efforts to serve as a figure of hope and support for those who are facing similar challenges. And you can see Rebecca Stott's story on Optus Sport this week. So check that out on either the app or the Optus Sport website. And her social media, Beat It by Stotty, is also fantastic, which documented her cancer journey. And thankfully, one which has now gone in a very positive direction. Then we get to the games this weekend. Girona versus Real Valladolid kicks off La Liga at 5am Eastern time on Saturday. There's a J-League triple header on Saturday evening from 8pm, which will include Kevin Muscat's Yokohama F. Marinos. Uh, we've got the Mark Schwarzer derby, Fulham versus Chelsea, Saturday night from 9.30pm Eastern, with coverage starting at 8.30pm in the Premier League. And the FAWSL comes back on Saturday night with Tottenham against Manchester United, featuring uh, Canada's Adrian. Adriana Leon uh, from 9.30pm. It's a primetime kickoff for the FAWSL. And as I mentioned earlier in the pod, you can check out Jesse Parker Humphrey's comprehensive preview of the WSL season on Optus Sport as well. It's all live and it's all on demand. It's going to be a huge weekend. Amy Harrison, thank you for joining us for the pod today. Thank you for having me. First one. Amy Duggan, uh, congratulations to Man U. All the best for this weekend and thanks for joining us. Win number five coming up. And Bridgie, uh, thanks for joining us again. I'm looking forward to discussing the aftermath of the uh, Man City versus Tottenham game with you next week. But thank you once again. Thank you very much. Take care. Make sure if you do listen to the Gegen Pod that you rate us five stars, subscribe, tell a friend. It's always a great chat every week. And we do love to mix up the lineup too with lots of great experts. I'm your host, Teo Pelizzeri. Thank you for joining us. This was the Gegen Pod.